0: Salim, if you can keep your Bibles open to uh, John chapter, 1 John chapter two, that would be great. I mean, the reason why we ask you to open up the Bible is, um, as we go through this, is for you to have a chance to look at it yourself. That uh, I'm not preaching something that is sort of it comes from my head or my even my experience, even if uh, they're wise. Uh, we want to preach from the Scripture, from God's Word, and so we want you to go through it uh, with me. But as we come to this time, let's pray that God will speak to us. Lord, we thank you that you love your church. We thank you that you are active all around the world, building up your body. And we pray that your words, uh, your powerful words will speak to us and build us up as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, when you've gotten really old, when you start calling everybody children, So even in people in their 60s and 70s, they look like children to you, and so you just call them children. And I'm sorry, even if you're you're in your 60s and 70s, um, they say 60s is the new 50s, so you're not old. It's just that, anyway, John was probably that old. He was probably 80 or 90 uh, when he wrote this letter, and that's how he addresses this church, everybody in this church, regardless of their age. Dear children, he says in verse 1, and there's this grandfatherly love about John. He cares not only, not as a schoolmaster, but as a grandfather, uh, people uh, who love their children. And you can hear the tenderness in his voice. Dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But there's also wisdom in John as well, because he goes on to say um, that, that, that he's, he put, uh, in last week, he put this uncomprom- uncompromising standard. That God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. And he has called us to be like him. He has wrote this letter so that we will not sin. But he is wise. He knows that we will sin. And he seeks to assure us. What do we do when we sin? What do we do when we start doubting our salvation? When we start saying to ourselves, How can I do this? How can I know uh, uh, that I'm really saved? How can I know that I'm a child of God? And these are big questions, so let's see what John has to say. So when was the last time you said to yourself, "How can I be saved? How can I be sure that I am saved? How can I um, be saved if I'm still struggling with this? How can I still say that I'm a Christian when actually I know, when other people know that I have done, done certain things? John says once again that he's a uh, He wrote this letter so that we will not sin. But he's brutally realistic when it comes to um, the reality. In verse uh, one, he said, "But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. We have an advocate with the Father in Jesus Christ." I've been um, to the courtroom once in my life. Um, When I was 17, I got a speeding ticket. I had never been to a court before and the reason why I went to the court was partly because to argue my case but also because I, I didn't have the money and I didn't have the guts to t- tell my parents. And so it, it just, the, the date for paying the money had passed so I had to go to the court. So I went to the court all by myself and I was completely disoriented when I got there because there were many, many people in the court and I didn't know, what, you know where to stand and what to do. And when the time came and my name was called, I went forward and the judge asked me a few questions. And although I was there and I had a good case to make, I think, but I, I just froze and I couldn't argue my case. In fact, I think the cop who wrote me the ticket was there and he felt bad for me. He started defending me. He said, actually, that I was on a downhill. It's true, I was going downhill and I was just passing And I said, I I thought to myself, why did you give me a ticket if you knew all this? But anyway, being in the courtroom seemed like a big deal to me. And at what, but even for a speeding ticket. But imagine, imagine if you're standing in the court of God. Imagine your sins going, flashing before you. Every single thing that you've done, things that you've done other people know about, things that you have been hiding for all your life. What, What will you do? Will you freeze up like I did? But then again, this is also why we pay big money to lawyers, right? So that they could speak for us. And that's the picture that God gives us in verse 1. Satan literally means accuser, accuser, the prosecutor. And when he accuses, we will have one who speaks on our behalf. We will have Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In the latest NIV, the the latest version of the NIV, NIV, he's called the advocate. We will have an advocate who will be along our side. He will speak on our behalf when we feel too stricken, too ashamed to open our mouths. He will speak for us. And Christ's defense will be completely persuasive, not only because it's the Son speaking to the Father, but for a different reason as well. And you see, John called uh, Jesus the righteous one. He underscored the fact that Jesus is a righteous one. And that's true. It's great to have a person next to us who is upright, who can speak to God in that way. But in verse 2, we're then told that this righteous one became atoning sacrifice for our sins and for everyone who who would turn to him. The word atoning sacrifice, um, or hilasmus in Greek, refers to the Hebrew word sin offering. Sin offering. It was a sacrifice that the priest offered on behalf of himself, on behalf of the nation, and uh, for himself, where he laid the, uh, his hands on, 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 on this goat, uh, on the sheep, and it was killed. Something needed to take on God's wrath, God's settled and just and righteous anger against sin so that he could stand before God. And so this thing took away God's wrath. It averted God's wrath away from ourselves to, 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 to the sacrifice. Jesus is that atoning sacrifice for us so that we may receive the blessings that he deserves and so what's amazing about this defense that Jesus will mount on our, uh, bef- before us, uh, before the Father, is that he's not, he won't just demand mercy. He won't just go to the Father and say, could you just have mercy on him once? He won't try to trick the Father with clever arguments. He's not going to say, you know, he's, he was a, good, he's a good person. He's not going to say that. He's, he's not going to say, you know, he's done this, but he won't do this again. That, that won't be his defense. The amazing thing is that he will go before the Father and he will demand justice. He will uh, demand justice. He will say that we are his and that he has already paid for our penalties. That the only right thing for God to do is to free us, to admit us into fellowship with himself. This is how Tim Keller puts it. Jesus, as our advocate, isn't asking for mercy from his Father on behalf of his people. He's up there demanding justice. He's saying, Father, these are my people. They believe in me. You must love them. You must accept them. Why? Because it would be unjust not to. To punish them for sins I've already paid for would be unjust. Therefore, Father, I do not ask for mercy. I ask for justice. That will be the completely that, that complete persuasive defense. The penalty has been paid for and our advocate will demand justice from the Father. That's how we know we have assurance. That's how we know that we are saved. We are saved because God's perfect justice and mercy met in Jesus Christ. Because God loved us so much that he sent his son to bear penalties for our sins to propitiate or avert God's anger away from us. And just as God's love was fulfilled on the cross, God's justice was met there as well. And Jesus will speak on our behalf. He is speaking on our behalf before the Father now. And he will be pleased to listen to his Son. So one assurance that we have is external external from this doctrine um, that, 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 that uh, tells us what Christ has done for us. And we need that. And that is the base, basis upon which we build all other assurances. But we have other confirmations as well, other assurances, something that we can claim, internal assurance, that we can claim and grab hold of when, we're, when we fall into doubt. This is something that happens in our life. Assurance that we can look at our lives and then see that there are um, reasons for our assurances. So just take a look at verse 3. Verse 3. John says, John writes, We know that we have come to know him. You see, once again, he's trying to assure us how we can know our salvation. We know that we have come to know him. If, if we obey him, we obey his commands. I think I should start, by, start out by saying that this isn't about keeping God's law perfectly, perfect obedience um, that gives us self-righteousness. This isn't about assurance that somehow we have achieved our salvation through our good work. And if you try to do this, you will be, you will, um, you will be plagued with doubt. Because if your righteousness, um, if assurance comes from your own righteousness, you will always fall. You will have good days, good weeks, good months, maybe even good years. But then you'll do something that will, uh, that will make you realize that you are sinner uh, through and through. So this isn't about self-righteousness. This is about motivation. This is about um, we can be assured of our salvation if we, have, if, we, if we obey him for the right reasons. In fact, he says so in verse 5. So take a look there. But if anyone obeys his word... Love of God, love for God, is truly made complete in him. The old NIV said God's love, but actually they changed it in the most recent NIV. It said love for God. And that makes more sense, doesn't it? It's our love for God that drives us to obedience. And when we obey him, our love for God is made complete. What John is saying then is our obedience should be motivated for our love for him. And that sort of obedience does not lead to self-righteousness. That's just evidence. That obedience is an evidence that we have come to know Jesus, that we have been changed by that love, that we have come to know and love him. And this also makes sense of that confusing passage in verses 7 and 8 as well, about the old and the new command. He seems to maybe contradict himself here. It's a little bit confusing. He says in verse 7 and 8, Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. The old command is the message you've heard. And then later on he says, yet I am writing to you a new command. Right? He says, I'm not writing to you a new command, but I, this is it's an old command, but I am writing to you a new command, he writes. And this is what he's talking about. Um, we were told to love our neighbors back in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 19:18, It says we should love our neighbors. We're commanded to love God and love our neighbors. And it's old in that sense that it's commanded in the Old Testament, but it's also commanded, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's old in another sense that everybody knows this. We should love our neighbor. Every religion says you should love your neighbor, you should do good. But then, Jesus later on in the upper room in ja- John chapter 13, gathers his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, and he, he says he gives us a new command. John thirteen thirty four. a new command I give you, love one another As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. What's new about this command is the motivation. The motivation has changed. It says, love each other as I have loved you. God has first loved us. He then, on that night, he washed his disciples' feet and then he says he went to the cross to show the fullness, full extent of his love. That's what's new about this command. Our motivation to obey, for, for obeying God's commands have changed. We, it, it's driven by our love for God. Some of you um, will buy your mother's flowers um, today. Maybe if you're a, child if you're, a ch- uh, child, if you're children, you'll buy your parents' flowers. And that motivation makes all the difference. Or husbands, motivation uh, makes all the difference, doesn't it? If you uh, bought bought flowers for uh, your wife or your uh, mother because you fear your mother, (laughs) you fear your wife. If you didn't get her anything, then she would get angry at you. Well, that's one thing. But it's a completely different thing if you go and buy these things because you love her and you want to show your love for her. It's the same thing. But it's a completely different thing. That's the difference between the old and the new commandment. So let's go back to the original question. How can we be sure that we are saved? How can we be sure that we are, uh, that, uh, of our faith? Partly, we can be sure if we understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And we are moved intellectually and emotionally and psychologically and spiritually by what Christ has done for us that we are moved to love him, to obey him. Commentator David Jackson wrote that uh, grace doesn't abolish God's law. It internalizes it by writing it in our hearts. Grace allows us to internalize God's law into our hearts. Our hearts. It moves those laws into the place of love. where we can, It writes it in our hearts so we love and obey him. We love him first, and because of our love, we want to obey him. So, is there love in your obedience? If there is love, you can be assured that God is at work in your life already. And the second assurance, then, is sort of the logical conclusion out of that, isn't it? Is there growing evidence of growing obedience to God and God's word? John tells us in verse 8 that truth is seen in us as it was seen in Jesus Christ, because darkness is passing and the light is already shining. The process of sanctification has begun, he says. It's a process. It's true. We're not there, but we are getting there. God is transforming us because he's making us love him and through his love, obey him. Perhaps John Newton, the converted slave trader who wrote that song, Amazing Grace, put it the best. I am not what I ought to be, but I am not, I'm, I'm, I'm not what I once was. And it is by the grace of God, I am what I am. We know that we're not what we ought to be. But as we look back, there should be some sense, actually, I have been changed by this grace. I am not what I once was. And that is the evidence of God's grace at work in your life. Is there growth in obedience? And once again, this isn't just uh, our love for God should move us into a disciplined life. A comprehensive obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every aspect of our life. And finally, here as well, the third assurance comes from our desire to love others. So our obedience in all things, but especially in the matter of love. If we want to be assured um, that we, we, are, uh, we are in him, we ought to be like him in loving others. Remember, Christ's love for his father didn't just grow him closer to God the Father. It wasn't that he just enjoyed a cozy relationship with his father. The love for his father moved him to others, to the people he was sent out as we sang, to the needy, to, the, um, to, to, to people who, who are lost. The evidence for Jesus' um, uh, drawing closer to the Father wasn't just his holiness, the absence of sin, but the presence of his love, love that moved towards others. And once again, John emphasized here, emphasizes here how we must then stay in fellowship with others, with each other, if we claim to walk in his light, in verses 9 through 11. We're not, we cannot be solo Christians. You can't claim to be in the light but hate a brother or a sister. And you think, well, I don't hate anybody. Hate is such a strong word. I, don't, I can't think of anybody that I hate. But what is hate if not indifference? If not, uh, not caring for other people? You might think you're not angry at other people. You might, but there might be apathy. There might be indifference. That's so what we talked about last week. We must start caring for others. And if we don't, that's hate. That's absence of love. And isn't indifference one of the most subtle and damaging form of hate if we, don't, if we stop caring what happens to our brothers and sisters here? That what matters to us is just my holiness or my relationship with God. That we stop caring for other people in this church and around, people around us. You might think you might not hate anybody in this church, but there might be people that you find maybe slightly annoying in this church. So you ignore the person and you avoid the person and you don't seek to have any relationship with that person. Isn't that what this means? Anyone who claimed to be in the light but hates a brother or sister, well, that person is still in darkness. And isn't love the opposite of that? Love reaches out. Love embraces others. It it works on those relationships to foster those relationships that we can continue to walk together in His light. How can we be sure? How can we be sure? Well, there must be some evidence in our life. There must be a sense of delight in knowing God, love for God. And that knowledge, that love must move us into obedience. There must be some sense of growth in our obedience to Jesus Christ. And that must especially be shown in our love for each other, in our willingness to continue to build on the relationships that God has given us as uh, God's family. That's how we know that we know Jesus Christ. We can be assured. And finally... We get assurance um, from not just our fellowship and not just from the doctrine, but also what we say to each other, what we teach to each other. So John writes, John wrote this letter to give us that assurance. He calls us his children in verses 12 and 14 to remind all of us this is when he says children uh, this isn't he's he's not talking to just small people he called us children in verse 1 as well so he's when he writes dear children this is talking about the entire church the church i'm writing to you because you know the father you um, they, you know the father through the son because you know that your sins are forgiven he writes um to remind us of our salvation, to assure us of our salvation. And he says, uh, the instruction to the father um, is repeated twice as, as well, verses 13 and 14. He says, he writes, because in his words, you know him from the beginning. The fathers here are men and women, mother, fathers and mothers, who are a bit older and mature in their faith. People who, ha- who have been Christian for, uh, Christians for a long time. And but John writes to give them assurance, to give them uh, to deepen their knowledge of God. And finally, he writes to young men and women in verses 13 and 14 again, because he says they have come overcome the evil one. And he modifies that in verse 14 when he repeats it again. He says because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you. It seems that he's explaining how they have overcome the evil one they became strong through the word of god it is through knowing the word of god and living by it knowing jesus christ and living like him they overcame the evil evil one once again this shows that this isn't uh it is a process that there are young men and women that there are older mothers and children, uh, mothers and fathers that are the, sancti- uh, the process of sanctification isn't overnight, that there are people from all sorts of um, levels of, uh, of sanctification in this church. We are in a process together. But also, it shows us how important it is then for those who are mature in their faith to teach the spiritually young men and women the word of God. I consider it my primary job to teach you the Word of God, to point people, point you all to God's Word. But it's not just my job. It is all of yours as well. We want to be a church that teaches the Word of God to each other. At every level, Lynx, Salt, Solid Rock, Kingdom Kids, Revelation Warriors, Philippines Fellowship, Men and Women's Group, everything that we do, we want to be a people who grow strong because we are living, we, we are learning the word of God together and we're teaching the word of God together so that we may overcome the evil one. And as Keturah uh, reminded us, what a great reminder on this Mother's Day that there are mothers and fathers whose primary role, whose primary job is to teach their children the word of God, the, the grace that they have received. And there are mothers and fathers here the people who are more mature in their faith, it's our job to teach each other. It's our job to point people to the word of God that we may grow stronger. There will be times of doubt um, in our life when we think to ourselves, "How how can I know that I'm saved? Dear friends, know your doctrine. Know what Jesus Christ has done for you how he has forgiven you and how he advocates for you and demands justice for you. Examine yourselves inwardly to see if there is love for him there. See if that's moving you into obedience. And let's remind each other to love one another. And as we love one another, let's point each other to the word of God that God has given us. Let's pray. Lord, we give you great thanks for our mothers and fathers, our physical, our biological mothers and fathers who have taught uh, taught us your word and taught us the gospel. We thank you for our spiritual mothers and fathers here and around the world who have taught us to love you, to come to know you and love you. And Lord, we pray that once again, that you will overwhelm us with your love that the message of the gospel will be uh, not just sit in our heads, but it will go into our hearts, that it may produce hearts that want to obey you, that seek to obey you. And we pray that the world will know that we are your disciples in the way that we love each other here. But once again, we know that this uh, this can only happen through uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we pray that you will breathe on us that you'll send your spirit um, to each one of us, that we we may come to know you and love you and love each other. And assure us in these that, that we are saved, that we are yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.